uh, years ago, you know, one of the great struggles that you have as a parent of small children on Christmas morning is as a Christian, you feel like you need to somehow bring Jesus and the true meaning of all that Christmas is into a Christmas morning celebration. But when the kids come down, there are so many things there to distract away from Jesus and the gospel and all of it. Uh, There's the stocking, there are the presents, there's special surprises, there are things out on display that were not there the night before, and their mind is just racing with all of that, and then all of a sudden you say, okay, we're going to talk about Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus, the greatest, most exciting, most wonderful thing, looks shabby compared to the bicycle sitting there. It's It's a horrible tragedy. It's really one of the great evidences of our fallen heart that we can look on him as something less than a shiny trinket. But in that moment, that is the reality of what happens on many a Christmas morning. And so just to sort of cleanse the spiritual palate, one morning when we were living in Florida, you could get away with this in Florida, you could not do this in Aristic County, I'm sorry. But before we got into any of the Christmas stuff, I gathered my kids into the van, and we drove about a mile down the road to where there was a cemetery. And we walked out into the cemetery, and I said, kids, this is what Christmas is all about. Isn't death horrible? Isn't it awful? Doesn't it hang over all of our heads like a sword of Damocles? It just dangles there. It's an inevitability. Not only that, but it hangs over everyone that we love. And into that dark world, that dark reality of a world so steeped in sin and death and misery and decay, on a dark Judean plain, unexpectedly, a group of shepherds were ambushed and surprised by joy. Absolutely surprised by it. At a left field, it emerged unexpected, uninvited, frankly, It just burst into the darkness with singing, with angelic proclamations. What an amazing God who gives us that instead of the wrath we deserve. I invite you to join with me right now in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 20, and read these words, the very words of our God. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord." And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. 
And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now this passage in Luke 2 describes two describes some startling and unexpected visitations. First, the shepherds were visited in the most spectacular and awe-inspiring way by a whole heavenly host of angels who proclaimed to them the Savior's birth. And then, in a second surprise visitation, the shepherds themselves visit Bethlehem to see this sight for themselves and to tell anyone who would listen what had been told to them concerning the child that they'd found in the manger. When the angels started speaking to the shepherds out on that dark Judean plain, a lot of weighty, significant words began to spill out. And we could focus in on each one of these words and make them each individually the centerpiece of our time together on this Sunday before Christmas. There were words like glory, fear, Savior, Christ, Lord, good news, and peace. However, the word uttered by the angels that I felt most drawn to this week to share with you and to focus in on in our time together was joy. Joy. These shepherds, as I already said, were surprised by joy. One gets the impression from reading this account that the news of Jesus' birth, whether sung by the angels or spread all over town by the wild-eyed, excited, rough shepherds, was such a rare and excellent happening that joy at the news of it rose up within them like the contents of a shaken bottle. And it would have burst from their frames if it could have found no other escape than their mouths. And all of our singing and sharing and good news spreading are like the ripples spreading out from that first splash of Christmas all those thousands of years ago. Those shepherds were the very first to receive the joyous news of Jesus' coming into the world. And they were also the very first to spread it abroad to other human beings. In this, they paint a picture of what it is to be the church. Joy received and joy shared. That's what the shepherds model for us. And really, it's a wonder, isn't it, that God first told the news to these guys. Why not to the high priest? Why not to the emperor in Rome? There were so many people that I might have put on the list ahead of some blue-collar shepherd workers, and perhaps there's lots of reasons we won't get into this morning why perhaps they were chosen. But suffice it to say that it's also not who the courts would have chosen to have be the first witnesses to the birth of Christ either. I, I take away from this one thing I'll just share before we move on. Many of us feel, I think, burdened with the sense that we are inadequate as a witness to Jesus. Who would believe us about our experience? Who would lay any weight on what we said? And if I did say it, it would probably come out wrong. I don't have it all straight. And so we don't say anything. Well, who did God choose as his first witnesses? 
the first in that great line of evangelists that now encompass Charles Spurgeon and you and me. The very first were these shepherds, unlearned shepherds, probably didn't get the words just right, who were just full of such an incredible joy that just could not be contained. It spilled out of their mouth as the, as the overflow of a heart that was full of something. This joy that the angels proclaimed and which is ours in Jesus is made of different stuff than other forms of earthly joy. We, we really have to get this straight. I, I think uh, when we talk about Christmas joy, it is so mixed up in our culture with something else than what I mean this morning that we really have to make sharp and delineated what I mean. I believe Christmas, when it's best understood, is designed to stir within us a longing for something rather than to satisfy that longing. Christmas joy is all about anticipation of a future coming reality in the midst of a present that is broken. When my wife Sarah and I were newlyweds, I had a job, we lived in St. Albans, Vermont, and I had a job working as a police officer in a small city there in St. Albans, and she got a job working the front desk at a motel. My shift would sometimes begin at 5.30 in the morning, and we only had one car. I would get up early and walk the mile or so into work so Sarah would have the car to get to work later herself. And my walk always took me past the city's industrial park, which was home to a chocolate factory, the Barry Calibo Chocolate Factory. And at 5.30, they were just opening up production for the day and coming up out of the stacks in Barry Calibo and floating out across the entire town was the incredible aroma of chocolate, cocoa. It was almost like the very air was flavored. You know, you could just <gasps> breathe it in. It was amazing. And thinking about those early morning walks and the smell of cocoa on the breeze reminds me of Christmas. Sometimes at this time of year, I think we, I think we can catch just the slightest hint of what heaven will be like. Christmas is a time when far-flung loved ones are gathered home. And there's a prevailing atmosphere of cozy togetherness. The lights and decorations, the excitement, the special food and music, festive gatherings, gift-giving and a merry sense of wonder, special times of worship. All of these bring to mind that smell of chocolate as I walked down Main Street. It blew across town, stirring within me a longing for the real thing. The smell of chocolate was good, but its taste is better. Chocolate in the nose is not as good as chocolate in the mouth. And Christmas stirs within me a very similar longing. This season is good, but ultimately it points to something better and more substantial that I long to sink my teeth into, and that something is the coming day, heaven, the presence of our Lord. The great tragedy of Christmas in our culture today is that they put too much on it. They seek their satisfaction in this season, 
not in what the season points to. And that is a very unsubstantial sort of joy. When Jesus comes back, we will satisfy the hunger that Christmas arouses in our hearts. And it won't just be for a season, it will be for always. For non-believers, this is perhaps as good as it gets. But for believers, this is, frankly, the worst it gets. And we have all eternity to look forward to. For non-believers, tis the season to be jolly. It's just a season. It's temporary. And on December 26th, when that arrives, the tree is hauled to the curb. Unless you're me, and then I wait until I can, until the tree is brown. <laughs> and then I haul it away. The credit card bill comes in the mail. The toy breaks. Everyone is sick of the song, sick from eating too much. All the goodwill and merriness burns away like so much mist before the sun. But for those of us who know the full meaning of Christmas, this special season, although wonderful and exciting, is really just a pale foreshadowing of the pleasures yet to come. It's the smell of chocolate, not the taste of it. And it's sad to think that so many will only ever celebrate the smell of Christmas, but will never actually taste it in its fullness. Christmas and all the other high-water marks of earthly joy are all just heaven on the breeze. It's true. But only those who have put their trust in Jesus for salvation will ever experience these things in their fullness. But the great news of Christmas is that's not a closed club. It's not at all. Anybody and everybody can receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus. So our celebration is full of a different kind of joy that fills us with anticipation for the coming day when Jesus will gather all of his far-flung loved ones home to be with him. As Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of your joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The angels told the shepherds that they had good news of great joy that would be for all the people. This news would be for all people, everywhere. But that spreading of the news would begin with them to whom it was first entrusted, and also to us, who have been entrusted with spreading this good news also. This got me thinking, this past week, our friend Julie Stevenson gave us cookies that were like a 10 out of 10. I don't know how she made them or what she put in them, but they were phenomenal cookies. We've had a lot of great cookies this season, but with these cookies we took upstairs, and what's the first thing my kids wanted to know? I've got five kids. As I announced last week, we have a sixth on the way. And when you have that many kids, the first thing you do when you put down any kind of food on the table, the first question out of their mouth is, how many do we get? They want their rightful share. Our kids are incredible at dividing things by five. They're the best. You could say there's 21 of those things there, and they'd be like, we all get four. They just know. Bam, like that. Now, here's the thing about sharing God. He's infinite. So what does that mean? Well, it means that when you share him with others, there knows there's no less of him for you. This is the great wonder of God. 
This is why Christians can be so open-handed and generous with giving people God. It's like a fish rationing water or something like that. It just doesn't make any sense. God is infinite. He is so wonderfully generous and abundant in his supply of goodness that the more you share of him, actually the more of him you experience. This is true. God is infinite. And what is this great, joyous good news that the angels sang out to the shepherds? This is very important. Joy in itself is good, but it's actually the cause of joy that the shepherds give. They say, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. What is that good news? What is the basis of Christian joy at Christmas time and always? Well, one of the clues here is this. When the angels first appear to the shepherds, what emotion does it say that they felt? Fear. Terrified. That's what the Greek word actually means. It means that they were terrified. Something akin to panic. When I was in the police academy, they taught us the definition of panic. We had to memorize it, among other words. And panic is a sudden and or overwhelming terror that destroys your capacity for self-help. These guys were panicked. They were overwhelmed with a terror that destroyed their ability to do anything to help themselves. And why did they feel that fear? I think it occurs naturally in fallen man. In the Bible, whenever fallen human beings have an encounter with God or his angelic messengers, they feel fear. What did Mary feel when the angel appeared to her to tell her about the role she would play in redemptive history. It was fear. (laughs) It's always fear. Why? Because we understand when we're in the presence of God how far we are from him, that we're rebels against the throne, that we're sinful, fallen creatures. And this is always the case. And so what is the good news that the shepherds bring? Peace. Peace. God does not want to drop the hammer on you. This is wonderful news. When Christians talk about being saved, we oftentimes couch it in terms of that we are being saved from sin, our sins. We're saved from death. And that is true. That is absolutely true. We are saved by God from those things. But a deeper question is why is our sin a problem? Why do we need to be saved from our sin? Well, because God is righteous. We've been saved by God from God. God is such a perfectly righteous God. He is so just. He is a righteous judge. And in order to remain perfect in his attributes, he must punish wickedness. If he doesn't punish wickedness, he is not perfect in his attributes. He may be a good God, a gracious God, but he's not a just God, if that can be allowed to happen. Sin must be punished. So God saved us from himself by coming to save us in the person of Jesus. Jesus, who is the great creator God. The Gospel of John, which we've been studying begins by explaining that through Jesus, everything that was, is made, was made. He's the great creator. But at Christmas time, we find the creator God mysteriously moving himself into creation and becoming a created thing alongside us. 
It's a very mysterious, strange, mind-warping event that happens at Christmas. It's hard to get our finite minds around. But Jesus is fully God, fully man, all at once, without ever becoming less of either. He is the creator, and he becomes, by putting on flesh, part of creation. And he put on flesh so he could wear a perfectly sinless body. He took that all the way to the cross where he was punished for our sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news of great joy. This is the peace that the angels proclaimed. So the angel says to the frightened, terrified shepherds, do not be afraid. I don't bring wrath and punishment. I bring good news. Although the angel does not appear to proclaim wrath and judgment, those things are certainly part of the conversation. Before there can ever be good news, there must be what? Bad news. <laughs> you can't have good news without first there being bad news. And the bad news is, of course, that our sin had separated us from God. But in Isaiah, writing about Jesus coming at Christmas time, it says this But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. So the good news wasn't that God was going to sweep the sin under the rug. <laughs> it was that he was going to pay our debt for us. And this is the peace that the angels proclaimed. Romans 5.1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The great gospel peace that the angelic choir proclaimed to the shepherds on that Christmas night was a peace between a holy God and sinful man that Christ would purchase us for us on the cross at the expense of his own blood. Jesus' birth did not mark the beginning of his life, but rather the beginning of his deliberate movement towards death. Jesus came as a redeemer which is to say that he took what was crooked and wrong and wicked and broken and unjust, and somehow he made peace with these things. This is the great, joyous, good news that the angels proclaimed to the shepherds on that long-ago night, that we who are rebels far off could be put at peace with Christ. And that is a very joyous thing. That is an amazing thing. Nevertheless, brothers and sisters, do you struggle to walk in the joy that the angels proclaimed? I sure do. Now, this is absolutely true for me. I struggle in a day-to-day -day kind of way to just live in the midst of that joy, to feel it. I want to, uh, something I've noticed a lot at Christmas time growing up was how easily uh, this great season of joy can become a season of stress. It can become a season of disappointment. It can become a season of all the opposites of what it claims to represent. And, and I want you to know this, that you have, some, you have been given something very valuable by Jesus. Uh, Jesus says that uh, for now we have sorrow, but on the day he comes back, we will have joy, and that joy will not be able to be taken away. And that's a wonderful thing. But we still live in the midst of this day, these days, where it can't exactly be taken away from us, but it can go to sleep. We can kind of let it set it down and forget that we have it. There are things that would rob us of our joy if we would let them. 
And I want to just really quickly, I think it's very important to our God that we walk in the joy of Christmas and of his gracious offering of peace. And I want to walk you through four things that threaten to steal our joy at Christmas. The first is circumstances. Of course, when things are going our way and circumstances are favorable, we feel a lot happier and we may even be easier to live with. However, the person whose happiness is dependent on ideal circumstances is just going to be miserable most of the time. I think this is probably true. And there's two reasons for this. Very few of life's circumstances are within our ability to control. You have no control over the weather, traffic, what other people say and do, or world events. And we only have limited ability to control other things like our health or how much money we make. Most of us feel not in control of the circumstances that surround us very much. And the second reason is that our fallen human hearts naturally tend towards discontentment. Human beings tend to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. We struggle with circumstances. Single people often think they would be happier if they were married. Married people sometimes think they would be happier if they had stayed single, or maybe if they had married someone else. Unemployed people think they would be happy if they could just land a good job. People with jobs think they would be happy if they could get some time off from working. Some kids can't wait to grow up. Adults wish they could be kids again. And it goes on and on and on and on and on again. Circumstances can rob us of our joy. It's so easy. Favorable circumstances, more often than not, are just an ever-retreating horizon. They never seem to arrive. And the question is, what circumstances are conspiring to steal your joy this Christmas? Here's a second thief. People. All of us have lost our joy because of people at one time or another. And to be fair, we ourselves have also no doubt been the cause of other, making other people lose their joy. And this one cuts both ways, that's for sure. But we have to live and work with people. We cannot isolate ourselves and still live to glorify Christ. We're called to live out our faith in the midst of our relationships, and that will of necessity involve people. The tricky thing about this thief is that sometimes he robs our joy by introducing difficult people into our lives, and at other times he robs our joy by taking away those we especially love. Sometimes our joy is robbed because people are present in our lives, and other times it's robbed because they're not there, and we wish they were. Christmas can be an extremely difficult time, a raw time when loss is felt more keenly. Following a breakup, a divorce, or the death of a loved one, we feel the absence of that person more keenly. Is there any way to have joy in spite of other people? I'll tell you a third thief that comes along to rob your joy, and it's things. Abraham Lincoln was walking down the street with his two sons who were crying and fighting. What's the matter with the boys, a friend asked. It's the same thing that's wrong with the whole world, Lincoln replied. I have three walnuts, and each of the boys wants two. Things. What thieves things can be. 
Yet Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus also warned about storing up treasures on earth. They're not safe. They do not last and they do not satisfy. Yet it is so common for people to think that joy will come from things. And in reality, the pursuit of things are joy robbers. We cannot find joy in a store. There's a third thief, and that is worry. I think this is the worst thief of all, and usually it involves the other three thieves. Usually we worry about circumstances, people, and things. I remember when I was in high school, I was an abs- some, some classes I did okay in, but in some classes my mind just didn't work. And I'll tell you a class I should have never taken was chemistry. <laughs> I will never make it as a chemist. That is for sure. I struggled. I had a great teacher in chemistry too, a very patient man who just stared at me with amazement as my mind could not get around all the formulas and equations and stuff. I could not do it. I was awful at it. And I knew that I was going to be getting a failing grade in chemistry. And I was really afraid of that failing grade because I was afraid of my mother, Janet Tate. You don't know Janet Tate, maybe, but (laughs) it was not going to be okay when that report card showed up. And I knew that the report card was going to show up sometime over Christmas break. So normally, Christmas break rolls around and I come home and I just am so relieved. The school stuff is done and now it's just all fun between now and when I have to go back to that awful, awful place. But I couldn't even enjoy home. It was like school had invaded my home. And every day when my mom and dad went to the mailbox, I just cringed inside, waiting for the coming bad, horrible thing. Worry completely robbed me of my Christmas joy. I could not enjoy that Christmas for fear of my F in chemistry. Which when it did show up, by the way, was a D. That man was very gracious. I don't know where he came up with the points to let me pass chemistry. I just think he was like, I don't want to see this guy ever again. It happens. But here's a deeper question. We can point out those those thieves that rob us of joy. But how do we stop them? It's all well and good, Josh, for you to stand up there and point out all the things that's wrong with my inner world. Circumstances, people, things, worry, These things are robbing me of my joy, but what can I do about it? I'm powerless. Well, let's go through them quickly. I know I'm coming close to being out of time here. What does the Bible say about how to stop these joy thieves? The first is circumstances. In Philippians 4, 11 through 13, Paul says this, I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances Oh, God, how do I learn that? How do I learn to be content regardless of what the circumstances are? He goes on. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in, every, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. 
I think we can begin by first confessing the limits of what we can accomplish in the flesh. Joy is listed in Galatians 5 as one of the fruit of the Spirit. So we would be foolish to think that we could create joyful attitudes by any other means than the Spirit. Uh, A quote I quote a lot, St. Augustine said this, and it just is very great. God, command what you will, but give what you command. Right? When we look at our need for joy in the midst of circumstances that are robbing us of our joy, we have to begin with prayer. The problem is spiritual, and so is the solution. Joy is brought about through the supernatural workings of the Holy Spirit in the lives of believers. So if you're struggling with lack of joy, either this Christmas or at any time, bring that before the Lord in prayer. Jesus himself said in John 16, 23 through 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So that is where we have to start. If we find that we are struggling with a lack of joy, we should bring that to God in prayer. A.J. Gordon once said, you can do more than pray after you have prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you have prayed. So I think that there are other things we can do, but we have to begin there. I think the Bible is clear that the trick to keeping our joy from being burgled is to foster certain mindsets and attitudes which keep circumstances, people, things, and worry in their proper perspective. Paul wrote those words about being content while under arrest in Rome. And what is clear throughout Paul's writing is that he is a single-minded man. And single-mindedness is the key to keeping circumstances from robbing our joy. But what do I mean by single-mindedness? Paul expresses this attitude in Philippians 1.21. He says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. His joy focused on Jesus in a single-minded way. As a result, Paul does not look at circumstances in themselves, but rather in relationship to Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 3.1, for example, he does not describe himself as the prisoner of Rome, but rather as the prisoner of Christ. In Philippians 1.13, he describes the chains that he wears as my bonds in Christ. He doesn't speak of the upcoming trial as a legal proceeding where he will argue his case, but rather, Philippians 1.17, set for the defense of the gospel. In other words, Paul did not look at Christ through his circumstances. He looked at his circumstances through Christ. And this really does change everything. Paul was able to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances because they helped to strengthen his fellowship with other believers, gave him opportunity to lead others to Christ, and enabled him to defend the gospel before the courts of Rome. Then we come to the second one, people. So we see that the key to keeping circumstances from robbing us of our joy is to put Christ first. And the key to keeping people from robbing our joy is to put others second. There's an old adage, I'm sure you've heard it before, that joy stands for Jesus, others, and you. You've probably heard that. Joy flourishes when we put Jesus first, others second, and ourselves last. 
The key mindset which will keep people from robbing our joy is to seek our joy in the joy of others. If we were to go through life putting ourselves first and others also went through their lives putting themselves first, then we are inevitably going to come into conflict. But a Christian who has learned to seek his or her joy in the joy of others will not expect others to serve him, but they will be servants. Philippians 2, 3-4 says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. I think most of the time when I hear that language in Philippians 2, I think, well, that's, a good, that's good advice for us to dutifully do that. But all of God's commands are for your joy. It's true. All of God's commands are for your joy. And so when God says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves, He's not saying, just stuff your joy away and do what you should do for other people. He's saying, fight for your joy by living in this way. It's true. It is humbling to serve others, especially if they do not deserve it or if they are especially rude or unkind. But humbling ourselves in service to others is the path to joy. In Luke 14, 11, it says this, For all those who exalt, exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Things. What do we do about this one? This is a tricky one because in our culture, Christmas has become all about things. And it's easy to lose our joy over things because our culture places such an incredible emphasis on it. But in Philippians 3, 19 through 20, Paul compares carnal-minded non-Christians with spiritually-minded Christians. He writes, speaking of non-believers, their mind is set on earthly things. But then, speaking of believers, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you see what that's saying? A non-believer lives for this life. They put on Christmas the weight of satisfying them. It does not stir in them a longing for something else, but it is the thing that they pin their hopes to. Jesus and other, uh, Christmas and other things like it. This is all there is, so of course things would take on an inflated importance, but for the believer, this life is not all that there is. Jesus said that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So the mindset, which is the key to defeating things from stealing our joy, is this perspective about a coming day. Until Jesus is enough, we will never have enough. And once Jesus is enough for us, things tend to lose their shine. So things rob us of joy by tricking us into making them our treasure. But if our treasure is stored up in heaven, not here on earth, where moth and rust destroy, thieves break in and steal, then our treasure will be secure. Jim Elliott famously said, he is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. We can't keep any of this stuff. So we should have a loose grip on it, and it should have a loose grip on our hearts. Because eventually it will leave us or we will leave it. So we should always be willing to give God whatever he wants to take, and to take from God whatever he wants to give. 
But when we have adopted a spiritual mindset and a heavenly perspective, it is hard for things to rob us of our joy. And we come last to worry, which is really the confluence of all the other three flowing together, forming this dominant expression in our hearts of worry and anxiety. In Philippians 4, 6 through 7, it says this, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I think in that verse, which is very familiar to many of us, the active ingredient, the thing that actually does the work of defeating worry as a joy-thieving thing, is that practice of thanksgiving. Here's the way it works. If the, if the circumstance or the person or the thing that is causing you to lose joy in your mind, you're able to take that to God and give it to him in prayer. You're able to take it and leave it at his feet. You have in that moment emptied your hands of it. You've set it down, as it were. That's why it says, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition, present those things to God. Give it to him. Empty your hands of them in prayer. But it says, with thanksgiving. This is the active ingredient. Nature abhors a vacuum. And when you empty your hands of a thing, your hands are empty. If you don't fill them with something else, you're going to pick them right back up. <laughs> you will. You will. Many times in prayer, I've come to God with some circumstance or with a person or with a thing that's worrying me. And all I do is just repeat that circumstance, person, or thing over and over again in my mind. And what happens is I feel more anxiety rather than less. It's true. I just get so obsessed and focused on what's causing me worry that my prayers just become a repetition of the worrying thing. But then at other times, and I've shared this with you before many times, very helpful for me, I'm, and I've told you this before, I'm a vehicular hypochondriac, which means that when I drive and my car starts making a new noise, I automatically goes to the worst. I'm, oh, that's the engine, we're done. <laughs> that's because I've owned so many winter beaters down through the years. But as you're driving and you hear a new sound and you start to worry, I tell you, I, it does no good for me to just start praying about my car, I have to remind myself with thanksgiving for all the times God has been faithful to me in the past. It's a very different thing once you confess or you bring the thing to God and lay it down at his feet to then say, God, I know you're the one that when the Israelites were up against the Red Sea and they had no way forward and it was hopeless and they were filled with despair, you're the God who made a way open for them. And when they were starving in the desert, they had no food, no way of feeding their children. You caused bread to rain down and settle on the ground like dew. You're that God. You're the God who, when I was hopelessly lost in sin and death, you made a way through Jesus and the cross. You who purchased me at such great expense would not now get stingy with me. And all of a sudden, after speaking back to God all the abundant, wonderful ways that he has provided for me and for his people all down through history, I find my worries about the car to not be so, have such a strong grip on my life. 
and I'm able to have joy in the midst of whatever it is. So thanksgiving is a very important active ingredient in this cocktail to defeat worry as something that can rob us of our joy at Christmas. But we come back full circle to that night in Judea. There are the shepherds. They're unexpectedly ambushed by joy, this incredible news. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace on those with whom God is pleased. God gets the glory, we get the peace. What an amazing story this is. God has done for us all that is necessary and we have peace with God at Jesus' expense. But we see those shepherds, what, they go, what happens with them is they go and they make known all that was told them concerning the child. And then they return praising and glorifying God. And we see in this the true mark of anyone who has received the good news that the angel proclaimed. They become people who share what they have heard concerning the child in the manger, and they are people who they themselves pray, are praise, praise, they praise God and they glorify Him. We are worshipers and evangelists because we have heard a great news, good news of great joy that is for all people. But not all people have yet heard it. And so we, like the shepherds, go out with this news rising within us like the contents of a shaken bottle, and it would burst from us if we didn't let it out through our mouths. I pray that that is true for us this Christmas time. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you have made known to us a wonderful thing. You have made known to us, God, the great, wonderful good news that we have been put at peace with you through Jesus. He has done for us what is needed. He has destroyed all the barriers that kept us from you. Jesus is our Prince of Peace, and in him we have a great, indestructible, permanent joy. Father, we know that that joy is something that will not be able to, take, not be able to be taken from us. But Father, we are guilty sometimes of setting it down, of neglecting it, of forgetting that it's there. And so God, I pray, Lord, that this Christmas time, the joy that the angels proclaimed could be ours. That we would live in the midst of a joyful anticipation of the day when Jesus comes back. And that today, even in the midst of great loss and difficulty, people, circumstances, things, worry, God, that you would surprise us with joy just as you surprised the shepherds all those years ago. God, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Give us a joy in your presence as we think about all that is ours in Christ. And Father, I pray that this joy would bubble up in us and spill out of our mouths in expressions of praise, worship, and also a sharing of the good news that we would tell others what we have heard concerning this child in the manger. That he is the Prince of Peace. He is the one on whom our transgressions 
were punished in him, on him in the, on the cross. And God, that we have received his reward. God, I pray that we would go out from here like the shepherds, filled with an excitement to share the good news with others. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.